Do you see that in the uh, second from last picture of the body on the yeah, table? Yeah. It's like the right hand is, there's no right hand there. Yeah, it's all decomposing pretty uh, pretty wickedly. Oh, there he is with his gear on. Yeah, and then they show the, the skin pics with the adipocere buildup. Adipocere. Is that going to be your new word of the day? Adip- it's the word of the day. You're going to try to fit it in. going to try to fit it in a conversation, aren't you? I am today. Welcome back to the Great Diving Adipocere Podcast, everybody. <laughs> and try not to make it seem forced. Right, like you just, just got to let up. it flow naturally. Oh, that orange has a very adipocere appearance. Have you been in the hot tub a long time, or is that just <laughs> adipocere? Knock, knock. <laughs> Building up on your body after. Who's there? Adipocere? <laughs> adipocere who? Adipocereing you here. Aren't you glad I didn't say adipocere? Hey, speaking of uh, romantic jingles, Brando. Oh. It is Valentine's Day, you know. Yeah. It's Valentine's Day today while we're recording this, and it's Valentine's Day weekend. So our balls should be the topic of discussion. Well, I wrote a little poem for you. <laughs> I bet you did. Roses are red, violets are blue. If you trim your balls, your date on Valentine's Day will thank us too. That's right, everybody. That's right, fellas of uh, the Great Die Podcast and ladies out there. Valentine's Day is here, and Manscaped is the remedy for what the love doctor has ordered. His prescription, it's the all-new Performance Package 5.0 Ultra, designed to elevate your grooming game and shine like the heartthrob that you are. So get out there and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped, like your old pals Jamesy and Brando, with our exclusive offer. Go to manscaped.com, snag your 20% off and free shipping with the code TGDP. Do it. Get your little lawnmower. Your little LED spotlight shine up down there. It's brighter than your best romantic smile. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you're making this stuff up or if it's on the copy. Brando, you ready for a happy ending? <laughs> <laughs> because there's Manscapes refined cologne as well nowadays it's uh the valentine's day touch to your grooming routine elevate your grooming routine and set the stage for romantically smooth celebration this weekend everybody you know what to do get over uh, there uh 20 off free shipping with the code tgdp at manscaped.com that's 20 off with free shipping at manscaped.com use our code tgdp because grooming your grooming upgrade awaits Ready to charm your Valentine dates. Brando, we have a little bit less of a romantic story this week. You mean you can get less romantic than ball shaving? (laughs) Uh, Slightly. It goes downhill. It goes downhill from there. Oh, oh boy. Yes, people, we are talking about um, uh, one of the early, early cave diving fatalities. This one takes place over in Australia, over in the famous Mount Gambier location of South Australia. A big uh, cave diving area for those Aussies, mate. Past the Vegemite sandwich, mate. That era, that area is chock-a-blocker, <laughs> chock-a-blocker, uh, full, of, full of caves over there, mate. And uh, none more famous than um, 
The Shaft. I figured if we're uh, talking about The Shaft, we might as well talk about Manscaped. You know what I mean? Or vice versa. If you're talking about Manscaped, you might as well throw The Shaft in there. Wasn't there a movie called The Shaft? Is it about this? I know uh, in the remake, Samuel L. Jackson played <laughs> Shaft. <laughs> He's a bad watch your mouth. That's a classic song. Who sang it? Who sang the theme song? Isaac Hayes. Come on, man. You call yourself a... Well, uh, what do you call yourself? <laughs> <laughs> a useless information <laughs> prodigy? Yes. Wasn't he on... Uh, he was the voice of the, of Chef on... The, he was the voice of, the, of Chef, yeah. Yeah, on... What's that show? South Park. Come yeah, on. I didn't really Come watch on. much of South Park. I wasn't a South Park guy. Well, you and I working together, we got all the decades covered. <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, the, the famous Shaft accident... In South Australia, near Mount Gambier, uh, unfortunately claimed the lives of four recreational scuba divers. And, and Brando, this is 1973. This is really before the days of people realizing just taking my little open water diver scuba class is not in any way going to prepare me for cave diving. Even being an instructor like some of these guys were. But... It was the beginning of disco. <laughs> so on a happy note. <laughs> See, it's not it's it's not all death and Adipasir. <laughs> and Adipasir on the Great Dive Podcast. We try to balance it out with a with a little happy note now and again. But what it also was was the uh the the birth of some cave diving rules and some cave diving education that was going to come uh, because this very incident is what birthed the CDAA, the Cave Divers Association of Australia. Australia. Sure. You know what the, was the first rule to be birthed during this disco era? Uh, never... Dancing bell bottoms alone. No, I think. you should always be staying alive. <laughs> if, that, if that one doesn't well, get some hate mail, I don't know what will. Well played. Well played. So a, a group of eight divers decided they wanted to go check out this shaft. This shaft that uh, opened up in the middle of a horse farm, basically, in South Australia. Uh, this, as the story goes, there was a, a horse farmer, you know, walking his horses out to the other side of his field when one of them, like, mysteriously just collapsed. And the farmer, like, turned to see what had happened. And then the horse was slowly trying to get back up. And upon some investigation, you know, so there was a hole that the horse kind of fell through got up but it was a s small hole you know a, a, about a foot or a third of a meter for our aussie friends in size and uh, looking at it he could kind of look down and look through and peer through and see that it dropped down the hole opened up into some water you know way down below and uh, he uh, took the horses back and later came out to to re-examine what was going on and that's where they found out he took a shot line sort of with him and dropped it down over a hundred feet down, 
before he hit anything that that slowed down the the descent of the of the rope line that he had but later on we would find that it's way deeper than the 100 or so feet before he started to, to hit something and uh later on they opened that hole up to about a meter in diameter to try to get some exploration access in there and uh by the way, this was back in like the late 1930s when that, that farmer first found that. And it was in the, the mid-60s before a, a local diver actually climbed down in there and uh, got into the cave and found this huge lake, basically, underwater. With, uh, it was you know, 20 feet or so from the, from the surface of the earth. And uh, the lake opening was over 50 feet in diameter at, at the top of that. And then uh, that, that lake would plummet down uh, nearly 150 feet to the top of uh, this rock pile. And then go on from there, you know, uh, over 200 feet in one direction and over 400 feet in another direction. So really opening up to a very deep and massive underwater cave Brando, i i found a, a a crazy thread on reddit about about this 1973 mount gambier cave diving accident that does start off with a not safe for work section um of some photos Kind of showing, you know, some newspaper articles about when this happened, some photos inside that shaft, and then leading into half a dozen just gruesome photos from the morgue of the bodies coming out of this. So uh, be careful, anybody, if you are have sensitive eyeballs. I know some of you that have sent in some hate mail about our Manscaped advertising. Sensitive <laughs> ears. Talk, <laughs> talk poorly about us to your dive buddies about hating our Manscaped. If you can't handle a Manscaped ad, do not look at these photos. <laughs> uh. But there is, uh, from the uh, keyboard stylings of gore girl 89 that there is a fantastically written post about this uh, there's a couple of newspaper articles i've come across that are pretty good there's a couple of great links in here there's a really good one to uh that that video that i sent you as well uh that guy does a really good job going over the uh the, the story of this as well mm-hmm. Of course, I'm, I'm trying to open it up to remember that kid's name, Mr. Baller or something. Was it Mr. Ballin. Ballin. Ballin? Former Ballin. Navy SEAL. You don't know Mr. Ballin? He's one of the most popular YouTube hosts ever. He does talk a lot about diving stuff, too, because I think he was a Navy SEAL. Mr. Ballin. So yeah, go check his, his little YouTube out. He's got a really good one about this story. And, of course, you know, when you scroll through, like, nobody goes to Reddit for just the interesting story you go to reddit for like you do anything in social media today it's for the posts that come afterwards and it just goes to show how big of a fear the majority of the world has about cave diving well after reading the reddit yeah everybody's afraid of cave diving it looks like (laughs) Uh, but when uh you know to, to those of us who are initiated 
when you look at the story, like like you and I look at it, and we go, well, dude, of course. He broke the number one rule of cave diving. They weren't staying alive. Exactly. You, you broke, like, all the rules of cave diving. Never dive on a Saturday night because you might have a Saturday night fever, and you don't want that. Uh, they really uh, rocked the boat. <laughs> Wasn't that another disco hit? Ah, the Hughes Corporation. <laughs> oh, look at you go. <laughs> well, these guys uh, obviously didn't get their scuba certification from YMCA. How about that disco <laughs> hit, Randall? That's a good one. That's a good one. Now, uh, 1973, uh, Mount Gambier, cave diving accident. This incident claimed the lives of, it was four recreational divers. Siblings, Stephen and Christine Milliot and Gordon Roberts and John Bockerman. The four divers explored beyond their own planned limits without the use of a guideline and subsequently became lost, eventually exhausting their breathing air and drowning. As of May 2015, it says here, they're the only known fatalities at the site. Four other divers from the same group survived this incident. They were probably listening to uh, some Gloria Gaynor. If they were with her, they, they will well, survive. That's probably, that's probably what they listened to on the whole drive out. <laughs> I can tell where this uh, episode is going to go. Yeah, right? It's going to be reported to Apple Podcasts <laughs> being grossly obscene. And we're going to get shut down. It took almost a year for the bodies to be recovered, Brando. Yeah, I believe it. And this was, like I said earlier, the, the birth of the Cave Divers Association of Australia. Because after this, a lot of just the locals, kind of like what, you know, what was happening down in Florida, like around the same time, like all the all the locals down there were like, you don't go in them there swimming holes in the, <laughs> they don't talk in the with, night time. They don't, they're Australian, mate. They, I know, but these, <laughs> like the Florida ones like that, and the Aussies like, I might you go in that swimming hole. A dingo will get ya. A dingo will eat your baby. And they wanted to like take like legal action and, and shut shut these areas down. Like nobody in their right mind should, would, can go into this area because it's sure death. And then it, it took a small group of people who were, were trying to push this frontier of the, this new activity and do it intelligently and safely going, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no we're, we're, we're building this agency so we can teach people how to properly explore these areas. It's not that you can't. It's just that you, you can't go in without the right education. And when we look at you know what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks on this year's Cave Diving Month and what we've talked about in the past, is they basically broke broke every rule you could break to lead up to this big multi-person fatality. Well, they weren't rules yet, so technically they didn't break any rules because there weren't any rules. You know that. that's that's why Judas Priest breaking the law wouldn't be written for <laughs> another was, decade. That, that wouldn't come out for another decade post that was the, post disco. Exactly, the post disco breaking the law. <laughs> I've seen Judas Priest three times. Did you know that? Did That's because uh, back because back in the eighties, you were living after midnight. I was <laughs> after midnight. I was rocking till the dawn. That's for sure. 
<laughs> but hey, if you think I was going to not go cave diving just because of a few casualties, you got another thing coming. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. All right, Brando, the shaft is on private land and is restricted to divers, accredited nowadays with the CDAA. But on uh, May 26th of 1973, there were a group of nine divers that arrived there with the attention of diving at the shaft. The shaft area was a, be, became a popular little spot for divers to go in and explore because it was a bit of an adventure. Yeah. Chris, crystal clear water, yeah. which is certainly going to lure lure these divers in and want to like get down there and see things as we know um, and on this particular day are they like there's rocks down there mate oi rocks. there could be rocks <laughs> let's just pass this little rock here more rocks more rocks look at those rocks those rocks are really <laughs> i bet you if rocky. we drop <laughs> drop down this 400 foot hole there'd be a really cool rock down here but brando there were Nine divers showed up. John Bockerman, Peter Burr, Christine and Glenn Millett, and Stephen Millett, Larry Reynolds, Gordon Roberts, and Robert Smith. Those were the eight divers that ended up going into the cave. And there was a ninth, a Joan Harper, who decided she was not going to be diving today. And instead decided she's going to hang out. I'm going to be surface support. I'll uh, cook us up some hot soup. So uh, everybody's got something to eat after you get out of the water, all cold and chilly. Warm your body back up and uh, assist the group in other ways that may be needed. And unfortunately, they definitely ended up needing that. Now, the day prior to the accident... The group met up with old uh, B.V. Ashby, who uh, owned the, uh, the farmhouse and signed the guest book. And they did one successful dive and extended a shot line about 150 feet into the water and reaching like the main point when you drop down that shaft, which is known as the rock pile, basically the the crumbling earth surface that, that fell down to create that sinkhole that the horse fell through is piled up uh, as a big limestone rubble um, about 150 feet below the entrance to that sinkhole. And then uh, the next day they decided, well, we got the sinkhole in place. We got the big job done. Now we can just follow that down and uh, get down there and we can go do some exploring. Some cave diving. Do some cave diving. Now, they were diving 72 cubic foot tanks. And uh, they got their bottles filled the next day on the 28th of May. They descended back to the rock pile and reports from the divers indicate that they had not planned to explore beyond the edge, which is a narrow and downward sloping continuation of the cave on one side of the main chamber, far from the natural light shaft provided by the sinkhole opening. The rock pile was generally considered the boundary for safe recreational diving. And the surrounding cavern was dark, 
unexplored, covered in loose silt and limestone rubble, and continued downward to depths where the effects of narcosis become extremely bad. Bad narcosis. Bad narcosis. And we know from uh, you know the rules of cave diving today, one of the main ones is we don't dive deep on air. For that very reason is is the level of narcosis that exists beyond that 100-foot limit can really start to take effect on the brain and start making some very bad decision-making in an environment which is extremely important to be able to make competent, clear-headed decisions, especially where these guys were going, which is well beyond 100 feet, 150 just to the beginning of this rock pile onward to 180 and then what would turn out to be well over 200 feet yeah which you'll be not arced out of your gourd at 200 feet let alone when you add the psychological effects of Cave being in an overhead yeah and being in complete darkness having a little tiny little dive light i mean think of the dive light that you had when you first started cave diving compared to the a dive light. candle i don't know if you knew this <laughs> compared to the dive light you have today and what you had was was 20 years of advanced technology prior to what these guys were diving <laughs> yeah well the it just goes to show you technology has really helped out with uh cave diving but yeah they uh, they aren't seeing a whole heck of a lot are they you know. Right. I mean, uh, if you've if you're a cave diver today and you've purchased a, you know, uh, uh, the, these an, new LED, an LED backup yeah. light. Yeah, right. That's that your LED backup light stronger than what we had for our primary fifty watt halogens. You were, if you had a hundred watt halogen, you didn't get much much burn time out of it. You know, you might have got twenty to thirty minutes, maybe forty minutes burn time. That's that's all you had planned. A hundred watt halogen is is like uh, it's even less than like a ten watt HID. It's way less than a ten watt HID. I remember when the HIDs came out, and then, right? You know that ten watt HID blew away the hundred watt halogen and allowed you to uh, go three to four times as long with it. You know, and the the batteries in order to get that type yeah. of burn, a uh, burn time yeah, along with acid. burn power. Mm-hmm. The the batteries were they were car batteries <laughs> enormous. Side, it, it was yeah. like it was like taking a whole other <laughs> steel seventy two down with you. Oh yeah, six eight ten pounds negative on your side. While the initial descent went smoothly, the eight divers neglected several recognized safety procedures early in the dive. The shot line did not extend all the way to the cavern floor and was not equipped with extra air tanks, nor were the divers prepared with adequate air management strategies. The group had not established specific diving partners. They did not use any form of a safety guideline. Glenn Millett later stated that they did not use safety lines because they thought that eight separate lines in such a confined space would have created a dangerous situation for the divers. Robert Smith, who had dived at the sinkhole on eight previous occasions and established most of the dive plan was not expecting the other members of the group to venture as far into the cave as they did. Separate accounts from the four surviving divers were pieced together with the help of former Chief Superintendent Wallace B. Budd 
to establish a timeline of what happened to the four victims. At the perimeter of the rock pile, Smith began to feel the effects of nitrogen narcosis. His depth gauge read approximately 180 feet, or 55 meters. An experienced diver, familiar with the symptoms of narcosis, Smith signaled to his group that he was returning to the top of the rock pile. The group signaled that they were going to continue exploring. Smith stayed at the rock pile, circling it for around eight minutes while searching for animal bones. He then saw the torch of Glenn Milliot returning from the direction the others had gone. Glenn had been monitoring his air and knew that he was out of time. He'd attempted to tra- uh, he attempted to tap Christine Milliot on the arm and remind her that her time was also up, but the two were separated before he could. Smith and Glenn Millet met and surfaced together to find that Larry Reynolds had already returned from his dive. Half a minute later, Peter Burr surfaced with almost no air left in his tank. Yikes. You should put out here, like, these weren't just uh, Yahoo divers either as far as their experience. And I mean, Australia newspapers and whatnot characterized them as expert divers. The girl who was 19 supposedly was diving since she was like four or five. Yeah, they grew up diving. Yes, they were divers. Yeah, back in the day when classes weren't structured, you know, uh, dad just threw a tank in the pool and let you swim around on it. And, and Well, dad had been diving all his life, too, from what I understand. So a, couple, a little, you know, they, they weren't just like um, her father was a professional diver. So, yeah, so yeah, he wasn't like a Yahoo. But or was but what, we're see- <laughs> but what we're seeing is, you know, the the whole reason, you know, why cave diving is cave diving and, and scuba diving is scuba diving is you look back at it and you go, OK, diving too deep on air. Yeah. Not running a continuous guideline. Yeah. Solo diving. No and, and this is yeah. this is classic solo diving like we talked about last week of, of the varying degrees of aloneness. Right. Right. Because they didn't start alone, but all of a sudden we, we start splintering off in, into solo groups. And, and luckily for half of them, they happen to find their way out. Yeah. But that, that was pretty much SOP back, back then, you know. And they... Like I say, they couldn't really break any rules because they didn't have the rules established. So they were just going in as, quote unquote, expert divers. Yeah, but expert divers in the open water. Right. You can breathe your tank to 500 PSI and go, oh, yeah, we better get out of here. But they didn't know that at the time, right? They didn't didn't know know that at the time. Cave diving was the... I'm sure it was being, I know it was being done in other parts of the world, but it was the fringe of the fringe. And it wasn't really like, wasn't really talked about and, and rule making and, and things like that weren't being discussed. Those things weren't being discussed really at that point. Yeah. And I know a lot of American cave divers are sitting here going, hey, well, I mean, that's because in Australia, they didn't have the likes of Sheck Exley over there. <laughs> Right, but but Sheck was making these same mistakes early yeah. on in, in the '60s when, when he was kind of learning the game as well. And, and you know, before he would, you know, come around to write the blueprint for survival of of basic cave diving. You know, he 
he and his buddies and and friends were were making the, the these same exact mistakes you know and coming to that uh, gas management rules that are so well known today which even like recreational you know just divers and dive instructors today don't realize you know the the difference in many ways of you know starting a dive you know knowing that you're going to come back with enough air that most people would think it's okay to start a dive with <laughs> you know versus yeah. just breathing the tank until you get low and realizing you got to come up I mean, those are two completely different ways of approaching how you're going to think through the end of the dive exactly yeah well we didn't get there like from nothing as, as i guess my point is these deaths and these incidents were all the impetus to coming up with a better way to approach you know, a dive plan and, and a dive period, right? Knowing the others would have similarly low air supplies, Glenn Milliot quickly put on a spare tank and returned to the water. He descended to a depth of 225 feet, nearly 70 meters, where the cliff began to drop off. At the edge, he found Stephen Milliot's torch and camera. He put on a single, like, 72 a single yeah 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 that's all they had 220 (laughs) that's all that's all that's they were all diving single 72s yeah yikes though there's no room for for uh error there's no room for uh mishap with your regulator there's really no room for much no you're at eight addas yeah even if you're uh, on a, a 72 on 70 cubic feet of gas, you're an eight yeah, ass. You're breathing probably if you're good, you're breathing four cubic feet a minute. Phenomenal. And just sit, sitting there, sitting there on the bottom doing nothing in, in the 70s, swimming around, just overweighted. They're all in wet. They're in wetsuits and right. 200 and nearly 230 feet of water. So, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're going to these aren't planned to be long dives at the best of situations. Significant amounts of silt had been disturbed, and the visibility had reduced to nearly zero. Glenn Milliot had no choice but to decompress and return to the surface. By the time he surfaced, an ambulance had arrived at the sinkhole. Peter Burr returned to the cavern for one more look, but found nobody. By that point, the group was aware that they were looking for bodies, not survivors. And, uh, you know, that there was the, the good part, I guess uh, you, you could say, of having, uh, what's her name, uh, Joan, Joan Harper up on the surface just uh, just in case, you know, to make the soup and do whatever needed. Uh, she was able to reach out and get an ambulance there, knowing that they were having problems. Well, now there's more soup for us, eh, gang? <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the planned dive, <laughs> upon turning around to the surface, the surviving divers saw Christine Milliot and Gordon Roberts attempt to ascend quickly back to the rock pile. However, instead of ascending along the slope they went down, they swam straight up. Possibly because they were worried their air would be exhausted soon, the two divers swam directly upward into a dome in the ceiling, which had no exit. Reynolds reported seeing their torches frantically searching for an exit before Robert signaled back that they were lost 
And according to Reynolds, Christine Milliot and Gordon Roberts looked frightened. This was the last time the two of them were seen, likely suffering from nitrogen narcosis and surrounded in silt, allowing minimal visibility. The two failed to find an exit. They exhausted their air supply and drowned. Their bodies were later found below the ceiling dome that they had failed to escape. Reports suggest that Christine Milliot and Gordon Roberts may have been holding each other as they knew their death was imminent. Their bodies were found together. That's, uh, that's a hard way to go. That's oh. a hard way to even imagine going. Right. Just, I mean, but I mean, I get it. I mean, I, there's many areas in, in a cave that when you go to the surface, there's these big, you know, pockets, Yeah. you know, these big domes. I mean, uh, it's, they're all over and to go up one of those thinking you're going up to home and up to safety just to find (laughs) out that it's another dead end because you broke another one of the cardinal rules, which they really didn't have fully in place, which was running a continuous guideline, not just have a line somewhere that we got to get back to that line, but always having that continuous guideline because so much of those wet rocks look like others just wet rocks and it's easy to mistake a rock for a different rock and and go the wrong way and when you only have 70 cubic feet of gas and you're scared shitless and you're <laughs> chugging and yeah. you're chugging over a cubic foot of gas a minute you know comparably down an eight ad is almost you know eight cubic feet of gas a minute at that depth exacerbated by the frantic movement and the CO2 narcosis on top of the nitrogen narcosis, man, that's, it's a, that's a downward spiral fast. Yeah, brother. I mean, again, the, the hindsight's twenty twenty, and just looking at it from the outside and knowing what we know now, it's easy to go, what the hell? What the hell, man? But Well, you know what it's like, though. I mean, um, when you're just an open water diver, and you go into one of these springs. Is there, is there such a thing as just an open water diver? Come on. Let's not sell our open water divers short. But when you think back to your your early days as an open water diver and you go into a spring and you see that dark hole, it kind of just waves its little finger. Ah, come here. Come here. Take a peek. And then when you when you get your first experience of a of the cavern zone, you go and they, you you want to go just a little bit further, and it's always drawing you a little bit further. So I can understand them going, "We're just going to drop down to the rock pile, kind of swim swim around uh, that in a circle." It's another case of just the tip. Just it never the tip. never ever works out well. <laughs> okay, okay, kids, are you listening? Are you listening to me? <laughs> yes, it's Valentine's Day, girls. Let's... Don't fall for the it's uh, just the tip line. <laughs> the tip is the worst part. <laughs> don't don't let the boys sell you on that just the tip. Whether it's Valentine's Day night or it's a little dive into an overhead environment, it's there's no taking just a little peek. It, it's, this is what it leads to, right? 
It does. It does. And you're right. It it does kind of beckon that part of your mind that probably drew you to scuba diving, period. It's that yeah, I yeah, want to go sure. explore. I want to see what's down there. You've all heard the call. The siren calls you, my boy. And you must heed her call. She sounds like the Bee Gees. <laughs> <laughs> And then to like be with your friend, watching that needle go to zero, trapped, and then they're just 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 hold just holding each other in the water for comfort uh, to your last dying breaths. Ah, uh, that's it's hard terrible. to imagine. It's uh, a tough one to imagine having to deal with something like that. Ah, uh, further down and around at the same time, one surviving diver says that they witnessed a member of their group swimming strongly downward further into the cave. This was John Bockerman, who was likely under the effects of severe nitrogen narcosis and may have been unaware that he was swimming to his death. His body was located about 20 feet further from where he was last seen and was at the greatest depth of the four victims. The fourth casualty... You you sound like he... He won. <laughs> he gets the prize. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's, you know, when you're frantically looking for the exit and you're fucking wasted, narked out of your mind and you just get something in your head of a direction and you start going, you know, it, it clearly in the wrong direction. But I mean, once you've decided this is the way I'm going, you know, and we look back to, you know, stories we've done in the past of this is where, you know, the line arrow came from was was a fatality like this and a, a note, you know, scribbled onto a onto a slate for when the bodies eventually, you know, find me. Hey, tell my family I fucked up. I tell them I got to the deepest out of all of these clowns. <laughs> <laughs> I did it. I did it. I beat them. I beat them all. I mean, this is a good illustration of the snowball that we talk about, how it's never, it's not just like one thing that happens. There's a lot of issues, and I'm hoping people are getting the idea like deep air and all all these things that we've already learned are at the root cause. They at least contributed to the deaths in the cave. So you see how they just all add in. When your brain's not working right, and that's an effect of the nitrogen narcosis, and, and even more that we're finding is the carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide, gas density, they all play in, to me, at least equal roles. CO2, gas density, nitrogen narcosis, they all play into that. You are not thinking straight, and uh, you're going to make a bad decision almost almost always. And then we have, you know, the incident here of Bacherman being alone. They didn't start alone, right? So they're untrained in team diving. They all started with dive buddies. It's a clear clear example of the difference between a dive buddy and a teammate and what diving alone really means. And here's a perfect example of different levels of being alone because he's in this cave with seven other people, but he's as alone as alone can be. And and had he been with a teammate, there is a chance of somebody going, stop. Yeah, we're, you were you're going at the wrong a way. Chance. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. At least there's a chance, which is why we get to the you know the the rules that we have in place today. It, it's not to prevent you from being able to do the fun dives that you want to do without the hassle of having a buddy. It's for competent 
decision making when shit is hitting the fan. Yeah. And an extra set of hands and an extra set of eyes, et cetera. So, yeah. The fourth casualty, Stephen Milliot, may have been seen lost beneath the cave ceiling shortly before the surviving divers serviced. Although his torch and camera were found deep at the base of the rock pile, his body was found under an overhang at a depth of only 50 feet. Compared with the other victims, little is known about Stephen's final moments, but he was wearing a buoyancy vest, and to have been found under an overhang, it is likely that he was buoyant at the time of his death. In a search by the cave, by the police underwater recovery squad, to a depth of 200 feet, was initiated on the 29th, that next day after the accident. The search was brief, and no bodies were found. The team was aware that they were unprepared for a dive in such conditions, and the operation was described by Chief Inspector Wallace Budd of the Southeastern Division Police (laughs) Headquarters in Mount Gambier as a, yes, a clusterfuck. This is what we call down here a squabbly-bubbly clusterfuck, mate. But he said this is a learn-as-you-go exercise. And the next day, they made a second attempt, again, which was unsuccessful. The police search was ultimately postponed as the team sought naval expertise on the dive, the training for which was expected to take several months. Yikes. Yeah, so, like, I mean, could you imagine just... We got to train for a couple months to go get these bodies. Yeah, you've got a, a, a team of police divers who are you know basically you know just body recovery guys they can you know for the most part it's you know they're going into shallow water you know uh yeah recovering a body recovering a car that ran off the road to now recovering a dingo doing one of the most uh insane (laughs) cave dives that the world knows yet right completely unprepared untrained going down Probably going to the bottom of that shot line, realizing there ain't no fucking way I'm going any further than this. We got to get out of here. Right? Yeah. And coming up, like, no way. No, there's no way we're doing this dive. Getting out and going, we need way more training this. And they're going to go on a basically a year-long training regiment for this South Australian police recovery squad, mate. A year. Now we... We're going to take a year of training. Well, yeah, so they they tried to seek out the best training available. So where's that going to be? The Navy. But even then, like, the Navy really wasn't trained in cave diving because all of their training really stemmed from the same original scuba education you know, source, really. Whereas as cave diving was going to start to grow as an educational model in opposition for very good merit, to the the whole rest of the scuba diving breathing underwater world do you think it was in opposition or in tandem complementary well i I think the the cave diving was going to be very different because it was going to have a set of rules that were going to be built that open water kind of ignored for the next 50 years well i mean they uh it's not so much i think ignoring either I mean, a lot of the, some of the rules are just not applicable to open water. Not all of them. I mean, you know, the continuous guideline. You don't really need a continuous guideline in open water. Things like that. I, what I'm getting at is, 
a whole year of training. The Navy, yeah, the Navies were good at physics and the physical aspect of diving, but they didn't have protocol. You're right. There's no overhead protocol. Yeah, if they uh, were going overhead in the Navy, they're doing uh, tendered surface supplied. Right, exactly. Right, and I, and I think that you know when we look at the rules of like continuous guideline, to me, you know, continuous guideline. If I'm talking to a brand new open water student, we can still have that conversation of you always have to know how to get home. And, and it's not just pop up anywhere. Like you can teach that concept to a, the very first time I've ever been underwater. But open water scuba tends to ignore that until you get to the point where you might need it. And then they start throwing that in. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, they like to leave that as like, uh, you know, they don't talk about the different types of diving in open water class, at least most open water classes, as far as an all usable, you can go and pop up anywhere, your boat's going to follow you, that kind of thing. Or you're in such a small place, it doesn't matter where you pop up, you know? Yeah. And, and we've had the discussions many a times on Great Dive Podcast about open water dives that need to be conducted. Like an overhead. Like an overhead, because you have to, because of the surface conditions, uh, because of boat traffic, because of the water currents, movement, yeah. of currents. Like you have to treat it like an overhead and run a continuous guideline. So it, it's not necessarily a cave diving thing. Right. No, I agree 100%. The following January, the landowners permitted a television crew making a documentary on cave diving in the lower southeast to enter the sinkhole. And on the 22nd of January, 1974, after several days of diving in other caves in the area, the crew descended to a depth of 50 feet using professional lighting equipment. They illuminated the cave like daylight. A technician looking in the direction of his teammates noticed what appeared to be a third person Behind them. Hey, who's that guy? Hey. <laughs> Crikey, mate. <laughs> Further inspection revealed that it was a body in a wetsuit. The team turned off the light and surfaced together to report their findings. And according to the crew, the body was not filmed. On the morning of the 23rd of January, 1974, police arrived at the sinkhole and dove to a depth of 50 feet where they found a body floating under a ledge against the sloped cavern roof. The body was immediately towed out, and police divers continued searching down to a depth of 180 feet, finding nothing else. The body was initially only identifiable by the equipment it was wearing, and official identification required dental records. The body was found to be that of Stephen Milliot. Brando, the landowners growing increasingly uncomfortable with the remaining three bodies stuck on the property, approached an amateur diving team from Melbourne to begin recovery efforts. However, the police diving team was finalizing their recovery preparations around the same time. And on the 9th of March, RG trainer and a team of divers entered the shaft equipped with substantially improved diving gear. Uh, and at a depth of 185, 56 meters, trainer saw a body below him laying on its back on further examination he found a second body directly beneath it these were the bodies of christine milliot and gordon roberts and 20 feet deeper trainer also located the body of john bockerman beneath a rock ledge 
He attempted to move the body into a more easily recoverable position, but abandoned the effort knowing that he didn't have sufficient amount of air. Well, at least he's cognizant that there are gas requirements. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because this is a this is an easy one, especially considering everything that we've talked about. Of like, I just found all three bodies. Jackpot, got them all to be two hundred feet on air. Yeah, uh, and, and realize them. and realize. Okay, this is good enough. I know where they're at. Let's 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 mark this off, and we're going to come back to it with full resources rather than get wrapped up in the moment and try to do all this right now. And I create a fourth body here. Yeah, not to mention, you know, getting getting bodies up from the depth in one piece and and you don't, you know, uh, make things worse. It's, yeah. it's difficult. It's difficult. Yeah, decomposing bodies. Yeah, they're only being <laughs> held together by... Uh, uh, by their wetsuits, wet probably. Yeah, 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 among other things, yeah. I mean, sometimes the connective tissue can stay pretty good. The next day, the divers attempted to return and recover the bodies, but did not succeed. And the effort was called off after the water became too murky. Several more dives were attempted, but the bodies now could not be relocated. Finally, on the third day of diving, the bodies were found again. Christine Milliot and Gordon Roberts were recovered from a depth of 195 feet. On the 11th of March... 1974, attempts were made to recover Bacherman's body from a depth of 215 feet the following morning, but the divers aborted the recovery because of the onset of nitrogen narcosis. The onset? Yeah, these guys are too fucking wasted. The onset. To continue. They, they, had been, to, they had to it, bail. It's, it, it's not onset, it's chronic. It's, uh, it's uh, It didn't just onset, it was the... They've been they've been diving with nitrogen nitrogen narcosis for the past several well year. Everybody's been right. narked out of their gourd in there. And I, I think this is a lot where you know this story will mimic many stories of the growth of the understanding of the rapture of the deep. Is uh, you can tolerate it a little bit. And you can tolerate it a little bit more, a little bit longer, a little bit deeper, and, until at one point you're like, you hear the wah-wahs, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's how you know you've been deep. That's right. The divers were sent home for a month to recover from the extended efforts and to further train for the final body recovery, which was the most challenging because of its extreme depth and position. The final dive plan included one day of diving to secure the location of the body using a guideline, a rest day for the divers to recover from potential narcotic effects, though narcotic effects are known to dissipate immediately on ascending, but, but they didn't know that back then, and then a third day to recover the body. Yeah, I mean, uh, that I can see, you know, doing, doing a dive to over 200 feet, on air decompressing uh, on decom air yeah i i i got i'm a-okay with having a whole 24 hours in between dives for sure the divers experienced significant narcosis during both days of diving but their improved equipment and procedures ensured the operation went as planned and john bockerman's body was recovered from the cave on the 9th of april 1974 11 months and 11 days after the accident the cause of death in all four divers was found to be a lack of air with terminal drowning. Hmm. 
was that four years of medical school, <laughs> bachelor degree, so 12 years of schooling, and he came up with it. We could have told you that. Yes, that doesn't really tell the whole story of, of what happened, right? I mean, because really this fatality started at the surface. It started when they started scuba diving, if you want to go that far. <laughs> but, uh, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, in many ways, you know, it... it, it They're just another part of the group of people that have had incidents or were at the impetus for a big change in the scuba industry. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Between, I mean, uh, between the narcosis, between the overhead environment, um, the need to establish some kind of protocol to avoid these things, you know, these kind of incidents was uh, becoming uh, acutely aware by the dive community, I think. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, uh, you, you, this fatality really occurred, in my opinion, when Joan Harper decided... I'm going to sit this out and stay on the surface. You're blaming the sun, Joan? Uh, no, I'm saying uh, <laughs> if other people would have had that same realization of, like, we don't have the, the all the training, all the mental readiness for this dive, you know, and then just just going on beyond that moment, right? That was the that was st- that was the first foot going over, you know, of the snowball on the hill. Yeah, but. No, it, it, you know, nobody had the training back then. Nobody had the prep- proper preparation. They didn't know. You d- you don't know what you don't know. And it's one thing to to have it available and you choose not to take it because you don't know what you don't know. It's another thing when nobody knows what they don't know because cave diving is in its infancy back then. And, and the only way we learned was these sacrificial deaths. Absolutely. It, it was going to be, you know, five years or... or- you know, yeah, five years or more, five, six years later before Sheck Exley's basic cave diving, a blueprint for survival would be published for the first time. And it, it, that book was the, the first time really a continuous guideline, air supply, planning, diving too deep, understanding lights, understanding panic, understanding anti-silting techniques would really be put in print for people that wanted to go and explore in environments like this to learn from. Yeah, well, I'm sure this was, do you think this was in Sheck's mind? At least uh, he, I know he had to have examined this whole incident. It's this isn't used as an example. In his no, book. no, I'm, I'm, I know it's not an example, but, but he, he would let Shaq would later go over and dive this area. Yeah, I know. Oh, oh, I know. The autopsy of Stephen Milliot, the three possible modes of fatal injury considered were air embolism, a consequence of lung over pressurization uh, usually due to ascent while holding the breath. But the evidence of lung barotrauma would no longer have been detectable after such a long period. Death is a consequence of breathing gas contamination, which was ruled out through tests of air remaining in the cylinder and lack of evidence of carbon monoxide in tissue samples or death by drowning, which was supported by evidence of diatom residue in the lung tissue indicating that there had been water entry before or possibly after death. Embolism was also found to be unlikely from the accounts of the survivors. 
And there was a lot of there was a lot of talk, you know, in in the papers and news stories of possible air contamination and the guys were really you know that was when the divers got out of the water a lot of the stuff that i remember seeing that's what they thought it was oh we were so narked out and so wasted it must have been bad air from the fills that we got after that first day of diving that's what caused it because we were fine on the first day but we were wasted on day two well I mean, and and it affected so many of them. It's like, yeah, you can see one person having an accident and dying, but four of them, it's got to be something in common with all of them. And, and, and they all got this gas at the same place, I'm imagining. Sure. And what we know now is what they all had in, in common was too deep on air. Yeah, no uh, line. Bad, bad technique. <laughs> no training. No, no line. line. Yeah. Panic setting in. Carbon dioxide, like, bubbling and boiling shitty bodies yeah shitty lights you know all that stacks up and uh the that recipe is a bad 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 situation yeah i mean those rules came from somewhere and uh this is a good story that shows basically all the rules <laughs> right because you know when you look at just the the, the frame of mind you know, when you're in a cave and you're hundreds of feet away from the exit to be there knowing there's there's one identifier in this tunnel with me that's showing me how to get home, Even, especially if you're in a, in a room where there's possible multiple ways to go. Right? So even though you have access to the exit right there with you, it can get a little bit much for some people. This is why a lot of people don't cave dive is they just don't have the mental fortitude to stay calm in a situation like that. You know, they, they get ramped up on the anxiety. But when you amplify that by being away from a line and having a bad light where you even if you had the line, you couldn't see where that line is. That's going to exacerbate the panic to a level that it becomes uncontrollable. And just because you have the five rules in place doesn't guarantee everything's going to be cool. Those Absolutely are just five, not. Yeah, those are just five things in common with, you know, 99.9% of the cave diving fatalities. They they had one of those things going wrong. So it's a good start, but it doesn't guarantee that, hey, you're going to go on this cave dive and everything's going to go cool. Because there's so much more that goes into it. And that's what, that's what good cave diving education is going to give you. Well, good diving is- education. Good diving education in general, but especially cave diving education, it's the experience that the instructor can pass on and the stories and the thinking and the mindset of, yes, it's it's not just show up to a hole in the ground with water. Make sure you have these five things with you and you'll get out safely. There's a lot more to it than that. Oh, yeah. And I think, uh, I mean, you bring up a lot of uh, what we preach over and over on these on these uh, little stories which is experience counts for a whole lot uh, you can't teach a diver uh, everything they're going to encounter underwater or everything they might possibly encounter underwater so you have to teach philosophy and you have to hopefully get get that student to uh, engage and and subscribe to that philosophy the coroner brando 
Special Magistrate R.F. Stokes concluded. Stokey. Stokey, oh, mate. Stokey. <laughs> concluded that the four divers overstayed their bottom time, ran out of air, and died of hypoxia. The usual consequence of fatal drowning. He concluded that these guys died underwater when they ran out of gas somehow. <laughs> well, yeah. The cause of death is these men who are not amphibians. <laughs> they were not fish. They were not amphibious. They could not breathe in an underwater cave. A further finding was that although all the divers claimed to be experienced, and four of them were instructors, none of them were experienced sinkhole divers or cave divers. At that, no appropriate safety precautions had been taken, referring specifically to the lack of fail-safe return to the surface, staged emergency decompression cylinders, any recognized safety system such as a buddy system, and that no one clearly had responsibility for planning the dive and the safety of the group. Yeah, I don't know. That's a little harsh, but... Well, I mean, uh, when you jump into a cave... And uh, you don't have a fail-safe, continuous guideline home. You certainly increase the odds of not making it home safely. And when you go into a cave uh, in 200-plus feet of water and you're going to incur decompression, to not have a decompression gas to breathe you kind of are, are hedging the bet towards the likelihood of you not coming home safely, right? And when you enter a cave with no clear, you know, delineation of teammates and who's diving with who and where we're going and what we're doing and no clear buddy system or team protocol, you're increasing the likelihood that you're going to get splintered off and split up and people are going to be alone. And what do I do? Do I go home or do I look for my buddy? Right? You're increasing that likelihood that you're going to get split up and somebody's not going to make it. And, and when you don't safely, clearly take the responsibility to plan the dive out from the beginning, man, as harsh as those words are, old magistrate strokes stokes was, uh, stokey <laughs> old magistrate stokey was right chock-a-bocka full of the right answer <laughs> there mate but yes everybody i mean that's a whew, brutal gruesome story of um of how cave diving got to the rules that cave diving has and I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep saying that. I mean, when you look, when you really, if you really look at the rules, and you generalize the rules, Rando, and don't take them word for word, like you need to have a continuous guideline to the exit of the cave, but rather you need to have a logical plan at the very end of the dive that justifies what you do on the dive. Right? You, you base the whole dive around how are we getting home. Well, that's something that an open water diver can learn. And I all and I always need to have, you know, a light and availability to see and a backup, you know, that you know whether that's overhead or open water. I, I don't think that's that that makes a, a big difference. An open water diver can understand that concept, and I need to always think of anti-silting techniques 
whether it's to preserve the visibility in an overhead or, you know, not break off a chunk of, you know, 10,000 year old sea fan coral on the reef. I think those are all concepts that an open water diver can be trusted to understand. Well, I, I agree. And, and those are all hindsight concepts. Those are all, I mean, in 1973, none of that was like part of your, your course, especially uh, a technique that doesn't damage the bottom or damage visibility. That, th- those are not taught in 1973. And you can look at any video. You can look at, look at the, the, uh, the whole culture coming up and look through Skin Diver magazine and National Geographic, any, any, media that had some kind of uh, image of a diver they weren't in good form and and they were just you know the bottom would just happen to be there and they would do whatever they wanted to it you know breaking corals no no so yeah i mean so it's all what what we know today of you know horizontal trim and balanced rig and precision finning techniques i mean this was the 2000s before there was a right. strong em- emphasis on any of this. I'm learning how to really come up with a dive plan. I mean, you you got to remember back when they talk about a dive plan, it's get back on the boat with 500. That's your dive plan. Go to go in together. Come, hopefully you come out together. You're a dive team. Uh, they might tell you get a compass heading in and out, you know. Um, but that's that was the extent of the dive plan. They didn't go in depth into the gas plan. I mean, that, that was the extent of the dive plan <laughs> education in 2023 for a lot of, for a lot of people. I mean, uh, that, I mean, that's the reality of, out, of it out there. You're 100% right, but, but they don't have the excuse of there's nothing like that out there. Because now there is, because of hindsight, we look back and, and we, guys like you and me and girls like you and me, um, we embrace girl <laughs> guys like you. You think a, yeah. what a chance of a, a guy like you and a girl like me <laughs> get together. So you're saying there's a chance. Uh, what I'm getting at is we choose to teach that because we embrace that uh, philosophy. Yeah, there's no excuse today. You would think, right? Because here, uh, you know, the the information's out there all over. You know. You know, for over five years now, you know, you and I have been sharing, you know, sharing these very concepts. Yes, we have. That's been, I think, the main, besides Manscaped, besides pushing some (laughs) some, uh, (laughs) razors. Some pube trimmers. (laughs) Go ahead and call it what it is. Besides that, I think the main point of our podcast and and our stories and what we had to say is, Hey, there's a there's a way to approach scuba diving soundly and safely, and and still have the fun, and still feel like you're you're courting death or you're ri- you know doing something risky, but you, but you're doing it with a, a plan and with proper training and with a, a proper approach that you reduce that risk. Yeah, there's a, there's an intelligent way to dive, there you and, go. and it's not just throwing on extra stuff to to breathe from, and it's not just you know taking two instead of one there's a there's a mindset and a thinking that can be applied to make everybody's diving whether you're a cave diver or just a shallow reef diver better right and that there's a a skill that needs to be developed and an art to it so i I hope that that people are getting that out of our yapping 
I, I do too. I do too. Well, what do you think, people? Let us know. Send us a little message. How'd you like this year's international intergalactic great dive podcast intergalactic cave diving month we're gonna go to star wars on people to to make it intergalactic that's what they need in the star wars franchise is some cave divers what do you think luke skywalker chewbacca is a cave diver what if we find out he's a cave a caver he's uh he's as hairy as any cave diver i've ever met i know but when he puts on that puts on the gear he's sleek he's streamlined his technique uh, it, is amazing because he's fucking eight feet tall. Imagine if Ch- Chewbacca manscaped <laughs> his entire body, Chewbacca. except for his, except for his face, <laughs> and uh, he'd look just like Larry Green. He would be doing. He'd be getting paid triple what we're getting for uh, pitching the old manscape because people would be like, if it works for Chewy, it'll work for me. There you go, everybody. Well, uh, we hope you enjoyed this one. Um, I think uh, that's a wrap for. Uh, Cave diving month, Brando. Um, you're re- you going to sign a logbook on this, or you no logbook all year long? No logbooks. No, we don't need no logbooks. logbooks. All right, everybody. You heard it from the green mandalishi himself, Brando <laughs> Schwartz. <laughs> the manda, the mandolin. Isn't it the mandolin? Oh, the green mandalishi was a Judas Priest song. I, I went. I went back. To, I went back to. I went back to Judas Priest. I thought you were doing Star Wars on me. This is something I have. It's something in the newer Star Wars that I don't know. I thought <laughs> the Green Mandalishi. I don't recall that one, but all right, everybody. We will talk to you next week. The Great Dive Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando. Blah, blah, blah.